Okay, before we get started this evening, we've got two announcements. Announcement number one is that uh, for prep school teachers, our next prep school meeting is scheduled for Sunday, December the 15th. So the next prep school meeting is Sunday, December the 15th. And the second announcement is that, um, well, I have three announcements. Second announcement is that uh, if you're here next Wednesday night, you will be by yourself and wondering why the building is so dark and you can't get in. Next Wednesday night is moved to Tuesday night. Bible class on Tuesday night because of Thanksgiving week. So that will take care of next week. And then the third announcement is for those of you who are coming to the uh, Christmas uh, party, the church Christmas party, that uh, we'll have a white elephant swap once again. So bring a present, something under $5 in value, and we will have a white elephant swap. Be creative. Always have a lot of fun. What was it last week? Last year somebody brought a flashlight. We'll never forget that flashlight. Don't be that practical. Let's have, you know. I thought there was going to be blood spilt last year over that flashlight. It didn't even cost $5, and everybody was fighting over that flashlight. Well, did you, you got, and Bryce got it, yeah. He's still bragging about it. Okay. Yeah, bring, bring it back, Bryce. Well, flashlight that goes on. Okay. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The flower fades and the grass withers. But the word of our God abides forever. Before we begin our study of God's word this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Just to give you the opportunity to make sure that you're ready to take in the word. Make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the spirit. A few moments to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to have fellowship around the teaching of your word, that we might be challenged by the, uh, by your revelation to us as to who we are, how we have been saved, and, and how we are to grow as believers. Father, we pray that you would help us to clearly understand all of the dynamics of our salvation as you have revealed them to us, that we may gain a greater appreciation for our great salvation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Every now and then I like to bring something a little different to the table. And uh, I've got a new program on my computer that gives you interesting information about different things that happen in church history. Not all of them are very significant, but some are of interest. And one of the things that I have set as an objective for this congregation this last year and continue to to press is just a challenge on the importance of missions and missionaries. 
It is important for us to have contact with our missionaries to know what's going on out on the mission field simply because uh, sending out missionaries is part of the function of a client nation. And nations do not send out missionaries. Individuals do not send out missionaries. Churches send out missionaries. Therefore, it is of vital importance that churches maintain a high level of visibility of missionaries and mission uh, programs because it is ultimately the people in the congregation who financially support these ministries. Well, one of the first of the so-called modern uh, missionary pioneers was a fantastic individual by the name of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor opened up China to the gospel about 150 years ago, and he was, uh, he was well known for a number of different things that he did. And one of his uh, founding principles was very similar to our grace policy when it comes to finances and money, and his basic premise was that he would never solicit funds but would always trust God to supply his needs. And... On November 18th, 1857, now today's November 20th, so we're a couple of days off, but on, in November 18th, 1857, he wrote this in a letter describing his, the way he relied upon God. He writes, many seem to think I am very poor. This is true enough in one sense, but I thank God it is, quote, as poor yet making many rich. My God shall supply all my needs. To him be the glory. I would not, if I could, be otherwise than I am, entirely dependent myself upon the Lord, and used as a channel of help to others. On Saturday, we supplied, as usual, breakfast to the destitute poor who came to the number of 70. Sometimes they do not reach 40, at other times exceeding 80. They come to us every day, Lord's Day accepted. For then we cannot manage to attend to them and get them through all our other duties as well. Well, on that Saturday morning we paid all expenses and provided ourselves for the morrow, after which we had not a single dollar left between us. How the Lord was going to provide for Monday we knew not. But over our mantelpiece hung two scrolls in the Chinese character Ebenezer. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us, and Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And he kept us from doubting for a moment. That very day... The mail came came in a week sooner than was expected, and Mr. Jones received $214. We thanked God and took courage. On Monday, the poor had their breakfast as usual, for we had not told them not to come, being assured that it was the Lord's work and that the Lord would provide. We could not help our eyes filling with tears of gratitude when we saw not only our own needs supplied, but the widow and the orphan, the blind and the lame, the friendless and the destitute, together provided for by the bounty of him who feeds the ravens. The basic principle is that God's work never suffers for God's resources, and God will always supply the resources necessary to accomplish his will. But he always does that through individual believers, and it is those who are responsive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in providing financial support not only for local church ministry but also missions that uh, provides for all of these needs. So we always have to keep that in mind. Well, we're continuing our study this evening in salvation and all that God provided us in grace at salvation. So let's have a quick review of the situation. We know that we have a sin problem between God and man, and we've broken this down into six basic 
components. The basic problem of sin itself, and that is that man falls short of the glory of God, that man uh, falls short of God's absolute standard, and because of that, man, as a as an unrighteous creature, cannot have fellowship with a righteous God. Second, we have the fact of the penalty of sin, that because God is absolute righteousness and perfect just, justice, and he is the uh, supreme judge of the universe, he must uh, bring about a penalty for man's disobedience. Then we have God's own character. God's character, the problem of his character must be resolved, and that is that a righteous God cannot have fellowship with a, an unrighteous creature. Then we have the fact of man's lack of righteousness. That has to be changed. That has to be resolved. And that can only be resolved uh, by God. Man cannot do it on his own. Fifth, we have the problem of the penalty itself. The penalty itself is spiritual death, which means that man cannot have a relationship with God. He cannot understand the things of God, and he is left separated from God. That's the significance of spiritual death. And then finally, man is identified with Adam as the federal head of the human race. Our position, Adam, prevents us from having a relationship with God. It is all of these problems that are resolved at the cross. It is not simply a problem of sin, but the problem of sin is multidimensional. It is has many facets to it, and yet God provided a salvation so great that it takes care of all of these problems. There is nothing that anybody can think of, no sin, no difficulty, no doubt, that anyone can come up with that wasn't anticipated by God. Just think a few minutes to think through the basic character of God, and it becomes clear that salvation must be exhaustive. That, what I mean by that is that God took care of everything because in his omniscience, God knows every problem that we will ever face. He knows every difficulty. He knew every sin. He knew every doubt. He knew every single thing that any human being would do in history, and therefore he is able to provide a salvation that is sufficient enough to cover every uh, every necessity. So it began by solving the sin problem. We looked at the doctrine of atonement, the doctrine of substitution. We saw that the atonement is substitutionary, and it is unlimited in its effect. That is, Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for every single human being. He pays the penalty for sin under the doctrine of redemption, so that the price is paid. As a result of that, God's character is propitiated. He looks on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and his righteousness and justice are satisfied. All of these things happen in relationship to every single human being, but they are only applied to those who, by faith alone in Christ alone, accept that substitutionary salvation. Uh, the first appli- the first category that we dealt with under uh, dealing with the problem of man's lack of righteousness is a doctrine of imputation and justification, that at the cross, when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed or credited to the account of every single human being. As a result of that imputation, we are justified, we're declared righteous not because of what we do. It's not because we become moral. 
It's not because we become good. It is because Jesus Christ's righteousness is credited to our account so that God looks at us not on the basis of anything on our on the part of our behavior or anything else, but solely because of what Jesus Christ did. This is so foundational. I am telling you that not not one person, not one Christian out of a hundred understands this. If you can understand this, it will revolutionize your life because in this is an understanding of grace that God blesses the believer not because of what he does, but because of he possesses the perfect righteousness of Christ. God blesses the righteousness of Christ in us. He doesn't bless us because we do anything. That is legalism. There is not one single thing man can do to merit the approval of God. The approval of God comes solely because we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is where we ended last time on the doctrine of imputation and justification. And that brings us to the fifth problem, the fifth brick in the sin barrier, and that is the problem of the, uh, the reality of the spiritual, uh, the reality of the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death. Spiritual death is clearly defined as separation from God. So we will look at that in a little more detail as we proceed. Let's begin by looking at a, the solution, which is regeneration. The solution is regeneration. This is the technical term, and the more common phraseology is to be born again. Now, the Bible presents this several words in relationship to uh, in relationship to being born again. The first phrase is the one that most people are familiar with, and that's the one that we'll study in a little more detail before the night's out. And that's the phrase that's found in John chapter 3, verses 3 and 5, when Jesus told Nicodemus that unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. The word, the two Greek words are the verb ganao, which means to be generated or to be born, and the, the adverb anothen. Anothen means, has a double meaning. In some cases it can mean from above, which would indicate the source of the new birth, or it can mean again. There is a tremendous amount of uh, controversy over the exact meaning of anothen, and some will say that it really means from above, indicate, and they will try to derive from that uh, the idea that man has nothing to do with his salvation. Usually you'll find that from a hyper-Calvinist. And the fact is that when you look at other parallel terminology, the other words that are used for this concept, then it becomes clear that onothen should be translated again, and it should not be translated from above. Although, as we've seen in our study of John, we saw when we studied this passage, and, and it's typical of John's uh, style, he likes to use words and verbiage that has a, a double meaning called the double entendre. And the reason he does that is because he wants to emphasize one thing, but he also wants you to be thinking about something else in the background. He wants to piggyback one idea on top of another. And so the idea he's piggybacking here is the idea that, that from, from uh, 
Onothan, that not only is it a, a second birth, but it has its ultimate source in God. And this is why John makes the statement in John chapter 1, verse 13, who were born not of blood, that means that in terms of regeneration, it's not a result of blood. It's not ethnic-based. It's not because you're a Jew, nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, it's not caused by your own will, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, man on his own does not cause his rebirth. Faith, as we'll see, is not the cause of salvation. It is the means of salvation. And when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, then through faith we are regenerated. God is the one who performs all of the regeneration. It's not partially caused by man. It's all done by God. So the ultimate source of regeneration is God and not man, but it is not accomplished apart from anything on man's part. It is through man's expression of uh, positive volition toward the cross and his faith alone in Christ alone. So the first phrase that we find is the phrase, Gnao Anothen, born again. The second phrase that is used is the phrase, Palingenesia, in Titus 3.5, where we find the statement, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And there it is translated regeneration, but as you can tell by just looking at the word itself and parsing it, that there's two parts to that word, pollen and genesia. As you can tell, genesia is a noun form related to the verb genao, and the prefix pollen is the Greek word for again. So it has that idea of a second birth or regeneration. In Titus 3.5. Then the third phrase that's used is the phrase anaganao. Anaganao, and this is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 23. In verse 3 we have the statement, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again, as our as New American Standard, I, I think, reads, According to his mercy we were born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So once again, the Greek phrase anaganao has the idea of being born again. Uh, verse 23, 1 Peter 1.23 states, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, that's a repetition of the idea in John 1.13, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So anaganao and palingenesia together give us the same idea of being born again. It's a second birth. It's not the primary idea. It's not source. The primary idea is it is a second birth uh, beyond our physical birth. And then we have a, a more clear statement that's a typo up there. It's Ephesians 3.5, not 4.5. And this is the uh, verb sozo. Poieo, made alive together with him. Sozo poieo, made alive together with him 
in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5. And Ephesians 3, uh, excuse me, that should be Ephesians 2, 5. Ephesians 2, 5, where we read, Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us, that is God, it picks up the subject from verse 4, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And that's Ephesians 2, verse 5. So this is the biblical terminology, the biblical phraseology that is used for this idea of regeneration. Now this, when we talk about being born again, you have to be very careful. Now, looking around the audience here, there's one or two of you are going to think this is ancient history. But uh, those of you who have a little gray on top of your head will remember that back in 1976, when there was a presidential election and the governor of Georgia was elected president that year, it was, he made a big issue out of the fact that he was born again. And uh, Newsweek or Time magazine declared that 1976 was the, because of that was the year of the evangelical. And everybody went around talking, using this phraseology, born again. But you never really knew what people meant by that. And I was involved in a conversation at a dinner party one evening where I was talking to somebody. And I learned, we all learn from our mistakes. And I made the mistake of asking this individual if he had ever been born again. Up to that point, that had been a good term to use. I mostly was talking with high school kids and junior high kids and uh, in witnessing there. And so this was the first time I got hit with an adult who it just seems had had a divorce that year and got a new job and, you know, lost some weight. And he was born again. You know, he had a whole new life, and he was all excited about that. And I realized then that this term born again is awfully uh, fuzzy for the unbeliever. So... You have to be careful how you phrase your questions to unbelievers and, and uh, define what you mean by being born again because uh, unbelievers have all kinds of ideas and they hear all this phraseology from different uh, Christians who try to witness to them and then they impute to that phrase all kinds of bizarre meanings. So we have to be careful to define what we mean by regeneration or being born again. So let's look at a definition. It is spiritual birth or being born again. That's what regeneration means. At the moment a person expresses faith alone in Christ alone, the Holy Spirit creates a human spirit, and God the Father simultaneously imputes eternal life to that human spirit, and the believer passes from spiritual death to spiritual life. John 3, 3 through 7, and John 3, 5. Let me read that again for you. At the moment a person expresses faith alone in Christ alone, the Holy Spirit creates a human spirit. We pick that idea up from Titus 3, 5. And God the Father simultaneously imputes the eternal life to the human spirit, and the believer passes from spiritual death to spiritual life. I think I left something out of that definition. The Holy Spirit creates, a, creates and simultaneously imparts a human spirit. That's what I left out of that definition. At the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, the Holy Spirit uh, creates a human spirit, creates and simultaneously imparts a human spirit to the individual, and God the Father simultaneously imputes eternal life to that human spirit, 
and the believer passes from spiritual death to spiritual life. All of that happens simultaneously from God's perspective. There, Remember, there are 39 irrevocable things that happen at the instant of salvation. And regeneration is just one of these. Uh, imputation, justification are all part of the package that the believer receives at that instant of salvation. They all occur simultaneously, and they are non-experiential. You don't feel necessarily feel better. Now, some people do feel better. They've been under conviction of the Holy Spirit, and they've been uh, weighed down by the guilt of their sins because people have beat up on them, or whatever the background is, and uh, they have felt lost. But they, In fact, I heard a great story the other day. Somebody sent me a CD with uh, some uh, real audio files on it of Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer teaching a course on the spiritual life. These, these were recorded on an old wire recorder. If any of you can remember back that far, Dave, uh, an old wire recorder, and they're awfully scratchy, but this was done in like 1950. He died in ni- August of 1952. So these are some really old recordings of Dr. Chafer teaching his class on the spiritual life at the seminary, and he was telling the story about when he was a young evangelist living in Massachusetts, and uh and he, there was a doctor in town who, according to Dr. Chafer, just lived a, a rather wild and profligate life. And Dr. Chafer said, before I could ever talk to him about the gospel, I decided I would talk to God uh, about him first, rather talk to God about people than talk to people about God. So he he's prays about him for about a year and a half, and then one night in the midst of a tremendous snowstorm, and Dr. Chafer says, back in those days, we had coal oil lamps in the house. We didn't have electricity. It's cold enough in New England now without having to deal with just coal oil lamps and fireplace to heat the house. That must have been miserable. Anyway, I almost missed the whole point of the story. I had to reverse the tape and back it up, just the imagery. I got so cold listening to that. But this guy came in, and he the first thing he said to Dr. Chaper was, you have to tell me how to be saved. I'm absolutely miserable until somebody tells me how I can be saved. And there are people like that, and as soon as they hear the gospel, it's like a tremendous load is off, off their mind, and they, they feel better, and they, ha- ha- they have a tremendous emotional response. But there are other people who, for whatever reason, they've had a bad day, they, they're hungover, whatever it may be, they hear the gospel, and they respond, and they're still hungover, and they still have a bad day. So it is emotion has nothing to do and is not a criterion for whether or not you have been regenerated. The only way you know is because you go back to the Word of God and it explains to you what took place at the instant of salvation. So regeneration is that is what occurs at the instant a person expresses faith alone in Christ alone, when the Holy Spirit creates and simultaneously imparts a human spirit to that person, and at the same time, God the Father imputes eternal life to that human spirit, and the believer passes from spiritual death to spiritual life. Now, that's all has to do with the definition. So we've had two points so far. Point number one was the terminology. Point number two is the definition. And point number three has several sub-points, and that has to do with background. Background to understand the necessity for regeneration. This is where we look at the other side of the issue, and that is the reality of spiritual death 
and how spiritual uh, death is reversed at regeneration. Every human being is born dichotomous. Now, Adam was created trichotomous. Let's define these terms. Dichotomous means that you are made up of two components, D-I meaning two, and trichotomous, T-R-I is a prefix. Trichotomous means that a person is made up of three components. And the scripture teaches that when Adam was created, he was created trichotomous. And here we have a chart. He had a physical body. He had a, an immaterial soul, which is made up of the self-consciousness, mentality, conscience, and volition. And then he had a human spirit. Now, when we talk about the soul, the soul was related to his operation toward creation, toward that which God had created. His self-consciousness gave him individual identity. He was able to distinguish himself from everything else. He had mentality. He could think. He could reason. He could categorize and classify all of the things in God's creation. He had a conscience, the idea of I ought. He knew uh, what he should do, and he knew that he should not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he had volition. He had a will. He had self-determination. He had to choose whether or not he would respond to God's prohibition or whether he would violate it. Now, the human spirit works with the elements of the soul so that the human spirit enables the soul to function toward God. The human spirit enables the soul to function towards God so that his self-consciousness is related to God-consciousness. I am, he recognizes, I am a creature in contrast to God who is the creator. In his mentality, he could think God's thoughts after him. He could think about what God revealed to him, and he could understand what God revealed to him. In his conscience, he understood the absolute value system of God, and in his volition, he could choose to obey God. So these are the three parts. Adam and Eve were originally created trichotomous, body, body, soul, and spirit. And they were given a test in the Garden of Eden to determine their loyalty to God and if they would obey God. And that was related to the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when they disobeyed God, the penalty that God promised was Death. Now, there are some people, many people, who think that it is physical death in Genesis 2.17. God said, in the day that you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And the uh, Hebrew uses an important idiom there where it takes a cal infinitive absolute and ties it in with a main verb. And when you take your main verb and you hook it up with a cal infinitive absolute, the purpose was not to double the meaning of the verb, but to give emphasis, certainty uh, to the action of the verb that this certainly would happen at the instant that Adam ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And at that instant, he did not die physically. In fact, the indication from Scripture is that if he had stayed in the Garden of Eden, he would never have died physically. And that is why the, the cherubim, if you look at the end of chapter 3, the cherub with the fiery sword is placed at the entrance to the garden to protect access to, or to prevent access to the tree of life to man. Because if Adam 
or any human being regained access to the garden and to the fruit of the tree of life, they would not die physically. So the indication there is that physical death is a secondary result. There are numerous results that are outlined under what is called the curse. And the curse begins in about Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, where God begins to outline to the serpent that because of his involvement in the fall, he would no longer walk upright, but that he would crawl around on, on his guts. And so, obviously, you have a physical, biological effect of the fall, that the fall is not simply something that happens in sort of a spiritual dimension, but the fall changed the way nature, the way physical Creation, it changed physiological laws, it changed biological laws, it changed the structure of certain animals, it changed uh, animals such as those that are, carnivor- that are carnivorous from uh, gramnivorous herbivores so that they became, uh, they went from being grass eaters to to meat eaters. Now think about that. That involves a change in your dental structure, a change in your, your gastrointestinal system, all of that so that that a spiritual decision, decision to disobey God, not only affected Adam in terms of his immediate relationship to God, but it reverberated through all of the universe. It reverberated through all of creation from the, from the smallest creature to the largest creature. Every aspect of physical creation was transformed by that decision. Now that adds a dimension to sin that most people never think about. We think of sin as something that just affects our relationship to God, and here we see something that changes uh, the very structure of creation, and that tells us something else that's important, and that is that God in his omniscience knew exactly what would happen, and he built into the entire created order enough flexibility to handle the consequences of sin, the chaos of sin. If all these systems had been extremely rigid, then then when all of a sudden you introduced the chaos of sin, everything would have just fragmented. Now, it, it was fractured, but it didn't just blow apart, so there was enough flexibility built in, and that tells us that God's plan is great enough to handle the, the, the chaos that comes from our negative volition. And yet, nevertheless, God is still able to accomplish his purposes, and that's how sovereignty works with uh, with. Uh, human volition. Well, spiritual death took place when Adam sinned, so that he lost the ability to uh, uh, relate to God, to to understand divine things, to communicate to God. He lost the ability to understand uh, divine absolutes and to choose to obey God. He was spiritually dead, and that is the basic meaning here. Uh, of what I mean, what takes place is spiritual death. Now, the Bible talks about seven different kinds of death. Seven different kinds of death are mentioned in the Bible. Spiritual death is only one of them. The problem is, death is death is one of those words in the Bible which is like baptism. You put in the word baptism, and immediately everybody starts thinking about water. And yet, there are eight different baptisms in the Scripture. As soon as you put in the word death, everybody immediately thinks physical death. Uh, or sometimes spiritual death, but there are seven different kinds of death in the Scripture. There's spiritual death, there's sexual death, there's carnal death, there is temporal death, positional death, and second death, and we studied all of these. And yet only one is in view in Genesis 2.17, and that is spiritual death. 
Now, the core meaning of death is not the idea of the cessation of existence. We have to be careful. The core meaning of death is not that something ceases to exist. When you die physically, you don't cease to exist. When you die physically, your the immaterial part, your soul and spirit, goes to be in, immediately in the presence of the Lord. Your physical body goes in the grave. You don't cease existing. You, you are separated from your physical body and from physical life. When... Um, when Adam died spiritually, he was separated from God, and his human spirit became non-functional. But Adam was different because Adam is the only human being who was created with a human spirit. All subsequent human beings are born without that human spirit. And we learned that from a comparison of various passages, and we've gone through these in the past. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says that we have received not the spirit of the world... There the word means attitude, the thinking of the world, but the spirit who is from God, and that is a reference to regeneration as indicated by the phrase uh, in the Greek, ek to theu. And we have done extensive exegesis of this passage, and I uh, just want to remind you that when you go through this passage and you have the uh, Paul talking about the spirit of God, he usually simp- he uses the simple genitive. And I've studied the phrase throughout the New Testament, and whenever Paul talks about the Holy Spirit and refers to him as the Spirit of God, he always uses the simple genitive, spirit, pneuma to theu. But in this case, and this is the only case in the entire body of Pauline literature, Paul uses a preposition ek, which means from the source of, and Whenever you see that kind of variation, your antenna ought to just start wiggling and thinking, why is it that we have this one exception? And, of course, one thing that I hate is that the modern or the tendency among many modern uh, conservative commentators and theology professors as well, this is just stylistic difference. And I think that stylistic difference is a way to uh, uh, negate inerrancy and infallibility in the doctrine of the verbal plenary inspiration, which means that every word is chosen by God. Every word is is equally inspired. The whole of Scripture is equally inspired, and it extends to every detail, even the most minor detail, and that this isn't there simply by chance or simply because Paul thought, well, you know, I keep saying pneuma to theu. Everybody's probably bored with that. Let's just have a little stylistic variance so everybody will think I'm a pretty good writer because I don't keep repeating myself. That's absurd, and yet that flies in so much that is taught today. Ectu theu indicates the spirit that has its source in God. Well, what is that? It's not simply the Holy Spirit. It is the contrast between what the believer receives at salvation in contrast to what the world has, the unbeliever has. And this is talking about the reception of the human spirit at salvation. And it is then, because as I've stated before in 1 Corinthians 2.9, there's a quote from Isaiah, where the emphasis is that what eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man, but has been freely given to us by God or revealed to us by God. The point of this whole passage must relate equally equally to an Old Testament believer and a New Testament believer. And if this is talking about the Holy Spirit, 
then it wouldn't apply to an Old Testament believer because Old Testament saints did not receive the Holy Spirit at salvation. But Old Testament believers received a human spirit, and that enabled them to understand the things of God in the Old Testament. Now, in 1 Corinthians 2.13, Paul goes on to say, which things we speak, we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words or spiritual concepts with spiritual words. Verse 14, but a natural man, the Greek is a psuchikos man, that is a soulish man, a man that just has a physical body and a soul, no human spirit. He's, he's dichotomous. He only has two parts. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, pneumatutheu, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Made dunamis in the Greek, meaning he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to just exactly what that means to be sukikos versus uh, pneumatikos and what pneumatikos means in terms of spiritually appraised. But Jude 19 makes it very clear. Of course, English translations muck it up real bad, badly, and it's not uh, clear what it means in the English. So I've had to uh, add some notes there for you on the overhead. Jude 19 these are the ones, talking about unbelievers in context, who cause divisions, worldly-minded, the New American Standard states, but that's wrong. It is the same word we have in 1 Corinthians 2.14, sukikos, meaning soulish, literally. And then it goes on to say that these are worldly-minded, uh, not having a spirit, it says in the um, uh, your New American Standard, and it, and it uh, capitalizes S, but as we saw in, in second, I mean, First Corinthians two fourteen, sukikos must, in context, mean not having a human spirit. So it's clearly defined in Jude nineteen that sukikos means not having a human spirit. That final phrase is appositional, giving the definition of sukikos. So we have a very strong case that what happens after Adam is that each subsequent human being that is born is born not having a human spirit, not in this sense. Now, the word spirit, as I've said before, both the word spirit and the word soul are used in about eight different senses in the old, both the Old Testament words related to uh, nephesh and the New Testament words related to suke and pneuma are used about eight different ways. And so one of the things that you will get, one of the criticisms of this position that you'll get from uh, some theologians is that, well, you're just putting too much on the language. Well, that's true. Some people have done that. But we have to recognize that these words have various meanings throughout the Scripture, and you have to look at the context. And in some places, there is clearly a technical meaning to these words, as I've demonstrated in 1 Corinthians 2.14 and Jude 19. Whereas in other places, they're used almost synonymously. Because when the soul and the spirit are together, they, they function as one, so you could refer to them by either component. It's also true that the word pneuma can, I mean, the word pneuma or nefesh could be used simply to refer to, or ruach even in the Old Testament, could be used to refer to just the immaterial part of man in a general, non-specific, non-technical sense. So when you read about the spirit of Pharaoh or the uh, spirit of any unbeliever in the Old Testament, don't make the mistake of saying, well, how could they have a spirit? That's a non-technical use of the word, obviously, from context. So 
what we have from looking at these two passages is the recognition that man is born physically alive and he has soul life, but he does not have a spiritual life. That is, he does not have the capacity to understand God and relate to God. So we have to define spiritual life, and spiritual life is that aspect of life that allows a human being to comprehend eternal truths, understand divine phenomena, and have a relationship with God. Let me say that one more time. Spiritual life is defined as that aspect of life that allows a human being to comprehend eternal truths, understand divine phenomena, and have a relationship with God. Remember, God is perfect righteousness. He's perfect righteousness. He's absolute justice. And he is infinite love. A perfectly righteous God cannot have fellowship or rapport with relative righteousness. So man has two inseparable problems as a consequence of sin. The first is he loses the capacity to produce uh, perfect righteousness. The best he can do is filthy rags righteousness. Second, he acquires a sin nature, which is the propensity to do sin and evil. Now, the result of Adam's sin is that spiritual death took place and man acquired a sin nature, so God has to solve that problem. Well, man tried to solve the problem on his own by sowing fig leaves. Now, those fig leaves uh, suggest that man uh, tries all kinds of things in order to cover up the sin problem. But he can't cover it up on his own. There's no amount of works righteousness. There's no amount of ritual. There's no amount of church attendance. There's no amount of good intentions. As my mother used to say, good in, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. There's no amount of sincerity that is going to ever impress God or overcome the problem of relative righteousness. And that is something that... The legalistic Pharisees of Jesus' day did not understand. They thought that by obeying the law, and the law had 512 commandments, and they had added to those 512 commandments uh, another series of regulations uh, on top of that, and then they added another series of regulations on top of that, so that all of these detailed laws that the scribes and the Pharisees promoted were designed to give man some level of acceptance before God. And this is the background for understanding the central passage for regeneration, which is in John uh, chapter 3. But all of that that I've said so far is simply to understand the nature of the, uh, or the background for the penalty of sin the background for regeneration, or understand the penalty of sin. Uh, that's all point number three. Point number four is that man consistently, I think naturally, I hesitate to use the word instinctively, but I think there is a, a natural element to this, that man continuously seeks to solve the problem somehow through his own efforts and his own energy, and that is what we call religion. Religion is the attempt to solve man's problems by man's effort, to somehow impress God, to somehow gain God's approval through doing something. And yet, man must rely exclusively on someone else to solve the problem. A dead person can't regenerate himself. And this is why Nicodemus was shocked. So point number five looks at the central passage for for regeneration, which is John chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now, I'm not going to take an extended amount of time to go through John 3. 
We have done that in our John study a couple of years ago, and if you uh, are interested, you should go. I think that I covered it in three or four tapes, so there's a lot in this particular passage. Now, we're told in verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now, literally, the name Nicodemus means a ruler of the people, a Greek word meaning a ruler of the people. He's called a ruler of the Jews. And so Nicodemus might not have been his actual uh, cognomen, his actual name. It might have been a title that was given to him. He is uh, from extra uh, biblical literature. We know that Nicodemus was a the, the preeminent Bible teacher of that day. There was no one superior to him, and so he had achieved the highest recognition in Judaism as a scholar of the Scripture and a teacher of the Scripture. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees, and, and we know that he served on the Sanhedrin as well as a member of the Pharisee party, and he came to Jesus by night. Now, the reason he comes to Jesus by night is probably because he was just too busy during the day. He was a well-known teacher, and he, he probably had to wait till evening before he had the time to come to Jesus. So he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, he asks this question, but Jesus responds by not answering the question, but by answering the, the, the underlying question. He knows what is on Nicodemus's mind. And Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, verse 4 tells, reveals to us that Nicodemus is completely confused at this point. How can a man be born when he is old? Now, when Arnold Fruchtenbaum was here last March for our conference on uh, Jewish backgrounds for the life of Christ, we learned that there were six different ways in which a, a Jew could be said to be born again or to have a new birth. And I'll review those for you if you don't remember them. First of all, when a Gentile converted to Judaism, it was said that he became a new person. When a Jew, a Gentile converted to Judaism, well, that wouldn't apply to Nicodemus at all. He was born a Jew, so that wouldn't make sense. The second way a person could be born according to rabbinic law, born again, was when they were crowned king. When they were crowned king. And, of course, Nicodemus was not of the house of David. He was not of royal lineage. So that would be impossible for him. And, of course, it would be impossible for most Jews. So Nicodemus would have excluded that as a possibility. A third way in which a Jew would be said to be born again was when they reached the age of maturity. At age 13, a Jewish boy is bar mitzvahed and becomes officially an adult male. And bar mitzvah means literally a son of the covenant. Bar is son, mitzvah is covenant, means he's a son of the covenant and he is fully accountable to the Mosaic law. And at that point, a Jewish male could be said to be born again. Of course, Nicodemus was much older than that, so he had qualified there. A fourth way in which a Jew could be said to be born again was at marriage, when they were married. And because uh, Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, we know that it was uh, uh, a requirement for members of the Sanhedrin to be married. Because of that, we know that he was married, so he was born again in that sense. Fifth, a Jew was said to be born again if they became 
uh, ordained as a rabbi, if they were a recognized rabbi and a teacher of the Torah. And, of course, Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews and a, a rabbi, so he would have been said to have been born again for that reason. And then sixth, a, when a rabbi became the head of a rabbinical school, he was said to be born again. Now, Nicodemus would have qualified there also because he is the teacher of Israel. So in all the ways that, that rabbinical thought indicated that a man should be born again, uh, that, that could possibly apply to Nicodemus, he, he had met them, so he's just completely confused. And he, he, he just break, his thinking breaks down, and he just addresses Jesus, and he says, well, how in the world can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother, mother's womb and be born, can he? he? He All these other things don't apply, so he, he just breaks it down to physical birth. Now, Jesus, when Jesus says this to Nicodemus, he expects Nicodemus to be able to understand what it means to be born again. He is not giving Nicodemus new data, or he would have explained it more. He assumes that on the basis of Old Testament revelation, Nicodemus should know what he is talking about. And so the background for this is found in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 26. And that is a statement of the New Covenant. A statement of the New Covenant which brings in, well, let's go there real quickly. Uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Ezekiel 36 Verse 25. Now, Ezekiel's in the second half of your Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, sandwiched in there between Jeremiah and Daniel. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, the text says, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. This is a consequence of the new covenant. And so it picks up this idea of, of cleansing and water. Now, in New Testament times, the rabbis only knew of cleansing when it related to someone entering Judaism. So this takes us back to that first category of uh, being born again in Judaism when a Gentile converted to Judaism. When, they, when, it, when water was mentioned, and remember Jesus goes on in John chapter 3 to, to describe um, regeneration as being born of water and born of the Spirit. And there's a lot of debate there as to just exactly what that means. Uh, now, if you go back to Ezekiel 36, I think it becomes clear that uh, it has a double meaning, which John is very fond of using, that at salvation, I mean that when, a, when, a, when someone entered Judaism, either it was a newborn Jew at circumcision or a Gentile at conversion, there was a ritual involved where there was this intense washing that was designed to symbolize scrubbing away the, the stain of sin. So the Gentile proselyte or the new Jewish baby at the time of his circumcision was then said to be a new creature or alive from the dead. dead. This is referenced in the Mishnah in Tractate Shabbat 19.3, Pesachim 8.3. And this concept of cleansing became an obsession with the Pharisees. I mean, they were obsessed with being cleansed from sin. That's why they're praying seven times a day. That's why they're going to the temple. Uh, three times a day, is they are obsessed 
with being cleansed. And according to the Mishnah Tractate Yoma 3.3, it states, No one entered the court of the temple to perform any service, even though he were clean, until he had washed. They were constantly washing. Five times uh, did the high priest wash his whole body, and ten times his hands and feet on the Day of Atonement. So they were obsessed with being cleansed. So all of that is point number five related to the background of being born again with with uh, Nicodemus in, in uh, John 3. This concept of cleansing, though, takes us from John 3 to our other key New Testament passage, which is Titus 3.5. From John and from the Jewish background and looking at Ezekiel 36, we understand that there are two aspects to regeneration. Rebirth on the one hand and cleansing on the other. So when it talks about the washing of water and the Spirit, it's talking about these two elements that take place at, at salvation. The washing, which Nicodemus would have thought of literally, but that literal washing was symbolic of what happens spiritually, cleansing from sin, and the regeneration, that is the creation of a new uh, human spirit, and its simultaneous impartation to the individual. These two acts are simultaneous, as seen in Titus 3.5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So it is, it is these two things happen simultaneously. There is a cleansing that is associated with regeneration and a renewal, the creation of a new human spirit. And then the term by the Holy Spirit modifies both the washing of regeneration and renewing. It's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult syntax in the Greek, but I'm not going to take the time to exegete it this evening. We just have washing of regeneration and renewing, two different things that happen simultaneously, and they're both done by God the Holy Spirit. So point number six takes us to Titus 3.5, where we have a washing and a renewal, and this indicates the cleansing from all pre-salvation sins. So no matter how bad you were, no matter what you did before you were saved, you are completely cleansed at the point of salvation judicially. That doesn't mean all of a sudden you are a Pollyanna. Uh, that may be an t- old reference for some of you. That doesn't mean that you are poly pure heart and all of a sudden you're wonderful and clean and spotless and, and as innocent as the uh, brand new snow, but it means that judicially you're clean. It is, that you're no, it is no longer an issue. It's the same thing that happens every time you confess your sins after salvation. You are cleansed and you can, and there is no sin that stands between you and God. So that leads us to point number seven in terms of trying to understand some order here, trying to put together some order. I think the order is this. This is called the Ordo Salutis. Let me write that up on the overhead for you. This is a fancy technical Latin phrase that is used by theologians to describe the order of salvation. And it is the Latin phrase, ordo salutis, ordo salutis. And first of all, what you have is that 
the believer expresses faith alone in Christ alone. The believer expresses faith alone in Christ alone. Then, and the rest of these things happen instantaneously and simultaneously. Then there is a cleansing from all pre-salvation sins. So that from that point on, the believer can be said to be cleansed. This was symbolized in the Old Testament by the complete washing of the high priest at his ordination. He is cleansed. Second, there is regeneration. God, the Holy Spirit, creates and simultaneously imparts a human spirit to the believer. Then there is imputation. Imputation of plus R and imputation of eternal life to that human spirit. And then God the Father declares that that new believer is justified. So then there is justification. Now that is a logical order, not a chronological order, because it all happens instantaneously and simultaneously. We're cleansed, regenerated, we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness and eternal life, and we are justified. So point number seven explains the logical order of what takes place. And point number eight states that because Adam died spiritually, all his descendants are spiritually dead. 1 Corinthians 15.22 states that in Adam all die. And therefore, all of his descendants are unable to comprehend spiritual truth or to have rapport with God. They are unable to understand spiritual things. So how do they understand the gospel? How do they understand the gospel? They understand the gospel because at that point of gospel hearing, put an E here for the evangelist, the evangelist communicates the gospel and the Holy Spirit substitutes for the human spirit in the unbeliever. And the Holy Spirit makes the gospel understandable. John chapter 16, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I think that's talking about what takes place at this point in time. And so he understands the gospel, and then he has to exercise volition, positive volition or negative volition, and choose whether or not he will believe the gospel. But he, it's understandable because of God the Holy Spirit makes it clear to him. God the Holy Spirit makes it so that he can accept or reject it. And the conclusion of this is that God solves man's problem of spiritual death through regeneration. Man is spiritually dead, but God then creates and simultaneously imparts to him at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone a human spirit so that from that point on he has the capacity to have a relationship with God, to understand the things of God, and he, has the, he will have eternal life uh, in heaven, a life that can never be lost. Now that brings us to our last brick in the barrier, which is the problem of positional death, and we will cover that next time, our position in Adam, and we will cover that time how, next time how God solves the problem of positional death by 
placing us in Christ. And now most of this is a review and some detail for everybody, but after we get past the barrier, then we're going to get into all of the complicated, controversial things that come up in the study of salvation, especially in the uh, modern lordship salvation controversy. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to see how clearly you have explained to us the mechanics of salvation and all that is involved in bringing us from spiritual death to spiritual life. We pray that as we come to understand these things, that we would be able to more clearly explain them to those who are lost, those who are without hope, without eternal life, those who need to put their faith alone in Christ alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.